0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Kunzman, host of the New Books Network, and today we'll be talking with Everett van der who is a professor of social and political philosophy at the Department of Ethics and Political Philosophy at Rambound University in the Netherlands. And today we'll be talking about his newest book published by Edinburgh Press, Russian Philosophy. Anarchy, authority, and autocracy. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests uh, just their general background and how did they come to write their current
1: work. Well, that's a that's a clear enough question. Um, I have a double background in this respect. I'm a trained philosopher specializing in political philosophy. At the same time, I've done a minor um, in uh, Russian studies, language and culture, and I've been combining the two. Uh, during the course of my career, I've also been doing other things like uh, mainstream political philosophy. Um, but Russian philosophy has become a major topic, a major field of interest with a focus on political philosophy. And the reason for writing this book, uh, well, first of all, there was an editor, the series editor, Vasilyos Siros, um at Edinburgh University Press, who uh, made a proposal. We had a talk and he suggested a book about political philosophy in Russia. Um, And I thought that it was very timely, Um, first of all, because Russia is an interesting case when it comes to political philosophy for a a number of reasons. Um, And secondly, there is no such book. So there are many books on political ideology, political doctrines, political currents, Marxism, socialism, you name it. Um, And there's also quite a bit of work on Russian philosophy generally, but those works tend to focus on Metaphysics, ethics, um, perhaps also philosophy of of language and of of, um, of knowledge, cognition philosophy. Not so much on political philosophy because it has been absent from Russian history largely as a discipline. So there were there were never uh, any chairs in political philosophy in Russia. So you really have to you have to look for it and you have to search it sometimes in unexpected places, which also made it well on the one hand quite a bit of a challenge. Um, At the same time, um, a a tour of discovery, if you like. So really going into the details and and trying to find political political philosophical themes in sometimes unexpected places. So at the beginning of the book,
0: you introduced geography. What what do you think it is about the geography of Russia that you wanted to highlight at the beginning?
1: Yeah, I I think that, and, and this is sort of common common knowledge among people who, who work on Russia. I think there are two main factors here which, in fact, explain a lot about Russia's history until the present day, if you want. One is um, the fact that so-called Kievan Rus, so that's the first Russian state, if you like, um, was founded on the river Dnieper, which is now called Dnipro in Ukrainian. Uh, which was at the time a major trading route between Scandinavia and um, the, um, the Byzantine Empire. So it was a very important trading route, and Kiev, or where now Kiev is, was one of the stops on that on that uh, road, so to speak. Um, that's one thing. So there always has been a lot of trade and influence, and it was, from the beginning, quite cosmopolitan in that respect. Um, mixed, if you like, not ethnically... Uh, homogeneous but uh, a mixture of different tribes and different well, vikings passing by and, and leaving their traces there etc um, and the second factor is the vastness openness and also flatness of the russian lands which makes it this flatness and openness make it very vulnerable for foreign foreign invasions um, for migration uh, make it difficult to defend and create sort of unclear borders and I think that that is a factor which plays a role until the present day um, Russia does not have clear natural borders um, the only exception perhaps is the, is the, um, the Caucasus as a mountain range uh, but other than that I mean the Urals are hardly a mountain range especially not in the north and both to the west and to the east to the steppe um, it, there are no natural borders so Russia is a very open, uh, has always been a very open country um, very vulnerable um, for invasions, but also for, for climate. Um, so harsh winters, dry summers, um, a history of, of sometimes of, of drafts and, and uh, failed crops and things like that. And I think that there is a, there is a sense of, how shall I put this? Um, if you look at, at the Russian nation broadly taken a long history I think that it has always been an issue: how do we define ourselves, and where do we, uh, where is our limit? Where is the uh, the outskirts of of our lands, and and where do, why? Where do we end, and where do we stop? To this, you can also add, on the po- as a positive note, that this same vastness and openness also made it possible for the later Russian state, so when Moscow became the capital, to engage in an incredibly uh, rapid expansion towards the east and later also towards the south so in the direction of what today is Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan etc it took it took muscovy less than a century to reach the pacific and that in itself is amazing so before the
0: introduction of christianity what did the political landscape look like there
1: um you mean in the early in the early russia in rus yes be, yes. Yeah, so before there was a Tsardom. Well, um, I think it, it is, of course, a bit speculative because sources, have, sources tend to be uh, unreliable and some, sometimes a bit mythologized. Um, but I think you can fairly say that the initial Russia was not a centralized state. Um, it it, it, it um, revolved around a number of big uh, cities, let's call them local capitals or something like that. And there was a system in which the, um, the family of princes, the actual rulers, would rotate. So the oldest one would be the prince of Kiev. But when that person would die, then one of the other princes, who, who had been uh, the prince of one of the other cities, would move to Kiev and everybody would go in a circle in, in, in a way, which is why that gave cohesion to, uh, to the country as a whole. Um, and apart from the princes, there were the so-called boyars, which are the let's say the rich merchants, um, bourgeois, you might also call them, but um, not, not of the not of the type of nobility that you would have in the United Kingdom, for example. and they would be the well the kind of aristocracy of of those uh, cities, and then of course, there was the ordinary people and uh, and the peasants. Um, And there it's also not irrelevant to note that um, we often think of of Russia when you look at Russia's past. Many people think that um, it had the same sort of medieval period that larger parts of Europe had with serfdom and things like that. But serfdom actually was imported rather late into Russia in the 17th century and until then. Uh, peasants were living freely in in um, in the vast lands of Russia, not bothered very much, I think, by the authorities. So I guess my next question is: When uh, Byzantine Christianity was
0: introduced into the Rus, uh, how did that affect the manifestation of Christianity, and how did it affect, how did it affect uh, the Rus?
1: Yeah, um, well. The story goes, and this is probably historically correct, although there's a lot of myth around it. But the story is that Rus um, deliberately and voluntarily chose Orthodox Christianity as its state religion. Um, the story is that the um, uh, Prince Vladimir the Saint, who was called the Saint because he introduced Christianity to Rus, um, made a choice between Orthodox Christianity, Judaism islam and western or so-called latin christianity Um, interesting is the case of judaism in this case because we often tend to think that um, judaism as a religion is is limited to well what first was palestine and then later became a diaspora across europe and other parts of the world but in fact there was a a state in uh in the volga region uh, which had adopted judaism as a state religion so, uh, although the people there were, they had nothing to do with uh, ethnic uh, Jews. Um, so there was a precedent. And actually, the people that presented Judaism in Kiev came from there. Um, and, but then Vladimir chose uh, Orthodox Christianity, so the Byzantine uh, form of, of Christianity. And that has had an enormous impact. First of all, it brought into Russia the idea of a, a Caesar. Um, later called Tsar, but Tsar is the Russian version of the word Caesar so um, an emperor um, which has become a tradition in Russia uh, in a way up till the present day. you know it's not accidental that um, when you see televised appearances of the current president Vladimir Putin, some of the the ritual around it has a Byzantine taste to it. The, the kind of pompousness and and the, the rituality of things. So it's quite the opposite of what, for example, American presidents would do, um, who try to appear as normal folk as much as possible. And the same is done by the Dutch prime minister and even by the Dutch king. Um, in Russia, it's quite the opposite. So there is this Byzantine, what some people would call Byzantine element there. Um, the second point is... The idea of a symphony between state and church so that the ecclesiastical authorities the patriarch and the worldly authorities the caesar or later the tsar are sort of dividing their tasks of ruling the country one taking care of the souls and salvation and the church church affairs and the other one taking taking um, care of uh, all the other things so the economy warfare etc that's the second point and the third point is that it limited the impact of ancient philosophy uh, greek philosophy on russia because there was hardly any reception of aristotle the philosophy that was imported from byzantine into uh, the byzantine world into russia was largely neoplatonic so plato and neoplatonism have always been very important in philosophy and in theology Aristotle, who was enormously influential in uh, Western Europe in Latin Europe, has hardly had any impact in uh, in Russia. And some people say that you can you can see that until the present day.
0: So I guess going on, how did uh, could you highlight how Christi- how uh, that Byzantine Christianity I guess manifested and unrolled throughout the centuries until,
1: the enlightenment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a very interesting topic um, i do not discuss it at great length in my book but i do touch upon it and i do highlight a number of points um, as i said this this well, part of the byzantine legacy was the idea of symphony symphonia um, of worldly and ecclesi- ecclesiastical um, authorities and that ideal became part of the Russian tradition, but it was very short-lived when it comes to political practice. Um, And there have been conflicts between state and church in the 15th, 16th century. Uh, There has been a to and fro. In some cases, the the church leader would take up um, a political role and vice versa. And this has been ended by what is usually described as the rise of absolutism in Russia, the idea of absolutism, of an absolute monarchy, was imported from uh, from Europe, uh, where at the time it was um, the, one of the one of the options, so to speak. Um, and along with the establishment of um, uh, absolute monarchy, um, the main author of which is Peter the or Peter the Great, as he is usually called, um, was the subordination of the church to the state. So what Peter did, following the Swedish model. Was directly subordinating um, the church to the government, abolishing the function of the patriarch, who was precisely the other half of the symphonic model, if you like. Right, um, emperor and uh, patriarch were the two the two powers. Um, abolishing the patriarchate uh, in 1700, or rather, not appointing a new patriarch when the old patriarch had died. Um, made an end to this idea of uh, put an end to this idea of symphony and this has lasted until 1917 after the february revolution the first revolution in 1917 until then um, the russian orthodox church was a so-called synodal or synodal i don't know synod you say probably in, in, in american english the synodal synodal church following the swedish model as i said so there was a um, a council of bishops, and they were directly subordinated to the government through somebody called the Oberprokuror, um which was the, as it were, the interface between the government and, uh, and the church. So the Russian Orthodox Church has been without patriarch for more than two centuries. Then it briefly did have a patriarch, which then again was abolished, the patriarchate by, or rather, uh, frozen, if you want. Uh, by the soviet government and then gradually uh, gradually re-established and uh, rehabilitated uh, during first war uh, during the second world uh, world war when uh, the stalin regime needed the support of the church in order to mobilize the people to defend mother russia or holy russia so the um, this this impact has been on the one hand very big, very serious, I think, this Byzantine impact, also also at the same time uh, being rather limited through the rise of absolute monarchy. But what is interesting is that this idea of symphony and of a symphonious and harmonious relationship between state and church has lasted as an ideal and has returned um, after the February Revolution of 1917, but also after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Um, and officially, uh, according to the official doctrine of the Russian Orthodox Church, today the relationship is symphonic between the two. Um, so between the Patriarch and uh, and the and the President, uh, who both, as as you probably know, uh, defend, for example, the invasion in uh, in Ukraine. Patriarch Kirill is playing a very clear public role there as a defender of this invasion and of making Ukraine part of a greater orthodox russia um so in the book
0: there you uh you, you highlight a debate that has been going on i think in russia for a while are we part of uh western europe or are we a distinct thing unto our own and this manifests in the debate between the westernizers and the slavophiles could you just highlight the debate
1: and the figures in that debate? Yeah, um, that debate goes back to the first half of the um, of the nineteenth century, um, actually to a rather specific period around uh, around eighteen thirty. Um, and a first thing to note is that people who participated in these debates, somebody like Alexander Herzen or Herzen, for example, a very interesting thinker, Herzen. Um, also, people like Granovsky, um, uh, somebody like Grigory Belinsky. Um, they used these labels and on, and on the Slavophile side you would have um, somebody like Kireevsky, Ivan Kirievsky, and also the brothers Chomyakov. um And they would l- The the labels are the labels that they used for each other. So the Slavophiles would call the others Zapatniki, Westernizers, and the Westernizers would call the others Slavophiles. So from a scholarly perspective, the very opposition of these Westernizers and Slavophiles um, is, you could say, is part of the, from our perspective, it's part of the object of research, not necessarily the categories in which we frame the uh, research. It's part of how they were calling each other and how we're, how they were framing um, the debate. At the same time, these labels have survived. So they have survived the 19th century. They have also been part of the 20th century during the Soviet period, when there was a clear opposition between what people would call the internationalists, um, who wanted to make Soviet civilization part of world civilization or even use it to replace, uh, in the long run, world civilization. Um, the, the, in an age of communism, the whole world would be united under one under one culture, one civilization. So there's nothing Russian about that, if you like. And at the same time, during the Soviet period, there also were strong currents um, in, in Russian culture or Soviet culture, uh, in philosophy also, um, that emphasized the Russianness of the Soviet Union. That focused on language, on traditional culture, things like that, and all of this is continuing uh, until the present day. So people will still accuse each other of being a Westernizer or of being a Slavophile, and these topics are and labels are always politically uh, politically sensitive. Um, and I think I was thinking about this question. I. The point is I think or an interesting point is that it's not limited to these debates in the early 19th century because if you look at the very at the very content of the label so westernizer zapadnik in uh, in Russian defines somebody as a person of the west and the slavophiles are focusing on the slavic world or the slavonic world not on Russia so the The very labels that you find in the early 19th century are still there in the rhetoric of the Kremlin today when it is saying that the West wants to destroy Russia um, or that the Slavonic peoples have always been uh, disregarded and disrespected by the West. So those categories are broader and especially I think it's interesting to see that the, the, the label of Slavophiles is not limited to Russia. So there, there is a kind of, I would call it an imperial mindset at work there, which lasts until the present day, because from a Slavophile perspective, indeed, there is no difference between Russia and Ukraine, right? They're part of one and the same space and one of the same culture, one of the same civilization. The question is, where does it end? Does it include Poland? Does it include Bulgaria? For the For most Russians, definitely it does include Bulgaria because of the, Uh, similarity of the language and the shared orthodox religion when it comes to Yugoslavia you had the same sort of thing from a Slavophile perspective Serbs are a brother nation also because they're orthodox as the Russians are so this is something that I think we in the west um, now I'm using the term the west as if that is one thing um, which is not correct of course but I think that we in western countries let me call it like that we often overlook this Deep, um, deep-seated imperial mindset on, uh, on the Russian side, which sometimes strikes us as absurd or as colonial or something like that, but which for many Russians is very much part of how they, how they see the world and has a long history.
0: So I guess my next question is, uh, where does the Enlightenment come in in, the, in Russian history? is it introduced uh, late as compared to like France and uh, England or does it come in around the,
1: around the same time? Um, the answer is a bit of both in the sense that um, in the 18th century, the Russian intellectuals, the so-called intelligentsia um, was very eagerly looking at what was going on in, uh, in Europe. Um, you have to realize that people in people with an education in Russia, and especially the nobility, um, those people had usually a home education, so they had their private teachers. They usually were fluent in English, German, and uh, French, apart from Russian. Many of them had better French than uh, Russian. This only started to change in the 19th century. So they would import books from France from. Germany from um, uh, the United Kingdom or England if they had the money for it. And many of them had the money because Russia has been rather prosperous uh, through the ages and especially in the 18th century, the age of Catherine the Great, when um, the Russian Empire was importing enormous quantities of artworks from uh, from Europe, for example. Well, you can only do that uh, if you have a lot of money. So Russia was in a bit of a a bit in the same sort of position that the Arab, United, the United Arab Emirates and, and Qatar are now, right? They can spend any amount of money to buy products of Western um, culture. And there was also a great interest in that. And for example, the same Catherine the Great uh, corresponded by letter with people like Diderot and Voltaire. Um, and uh, they did so in French because for her, French was an obvious choice. Uh, so they were very much um, on top of what was going on in Western intellectual debates. At the same time, this only applies to a thin layer of society, the top elite, the, uh, the people who could read and write, the people who had these languages and the people who had the money to actually order books from Paris or, um, or London or wherever. Secondly, there was a policy in, um, in the Russian Empire to send scholars abroad with a scholarship And let them study at a west european university and then bring home their knowledge and start to teach at russian universities Uh, and quite a few people were sent to germany especially to germany and to to scotland so in that manner um german enlightenment leibniz and wolf and thinkers like that were imported into russia later also kant by the way um, we shouldn't overlook the fact that where Kant was living Was for some time part of the Russian Empire. Königsberg was part of, um, or Eastern Prussia was part of the Russian Empire for quite some time, as it is again today under the name of Kaliningrad. Um, So, German idealism, uh, sorry, German Enlightenment, uh, Leibniz, uh, Wolf, Kant, also people were sent to Scotland. So, uh, there were Russian scholars studying in Edinburgh. Uh, and in Glasgow, they would bring home the ideas of Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, people like that, um, and would have an impact on Russian intellectuals. They would teach those theories. They would teach political economy in the line of um, of Adam Smith. And, and David Hume also plays a role there. And then finally, France was a particularly interesting case because the uh, French history in the 18th century was rather turbulent. And on a number of occasions... Uh, French thinkers, including already mentioned uh, Voltaire and Diderot, they would turn to Catherine uh, Catherine the Great for support, financial support, asylum if you want. Um, and so there was an impact there as well. Uh, and Catherine the Great also played a role in this personally by translating things and writing her own uh, her own stuff and one of her friends, Katharina Dashkova, um, went abroad as a kind of agent, for Catherine the Great and became president of the Russian Academy of Sciences. So in in the 18th century, I think you can, it's fair to say that um, the Russian intellectual stratum was really very much aware of ongoing debates in Western Europe. At the same time, this only affected the top layer of, of society and didn't have much of an impact on society or culture at large. Now, with these introductions of people
0: like Voltaire and Adam Smith, was there any movements to try to liberalize or create a, like a, cap, a capital political economy in Russia? Or was, the, or was this just
1: on the level of ideas? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, there was a, an introduction of capitalism by the Tsarist regime, but much later. So that really started in the second half of the 19th century as an active state Uh, state policy, motivated most of all by military reasons. They wanted to renew uh, the mining industry and the steel industry and things like that for military purposes. Um, uh, The Russian army was relatively weak in the latter part of the the 19th century. Um, But in the 18th century already, and also in the early 19th century, uh, there have been many attempts, for example, at writing a constitution. And this was stimulated by the tsars. So they would set up committees to write a draft constitution, which then would be rejected (laughs) and not um, applied. So it it remained at the experimental stage, if you like. Um, Larger scale experiments took place in uh, the 1860s and 70s um, under Alexander II, um, who also was the one who introduced uh, parliament in, and a constitution in Finland. Finland was part of the Russian Empire, but a sort of separate uh, duchy, a grand duchy. Um, so they could experiment there and then decide whether to apply that in Russia as well or not. There have been many attempts at modernization, political modernization in that sense. They have all been blocked mostly by the nobility, um, especially the landed nobility who saw their interests uh, violated and also by the peasants who generally believed in the idea the old orthodox idea of um, orthodox christian idea of a tsar a tsar that who loves his people and the people love the tsar so the daddy uh, the daddy figure if you like of, of the monarch um, and and this is where those attempts Despite massive support by intellectuals, uh, none of these attempts has ever been successful until 1905. That is, uh, one part of the book that you highlight
0: that I found interesting and did not know uh, initially was the um, you mentioned the early reception of Marxism into the university system before it became an explicit political movement. Could you just highlight that?
1: Yeah. Um that also is something that many people may not know, um, because we easily connect Marxism with Marxism-Leninism and with the Soviet regime and things like that, or with Marxist movements elsewhere in the world, political movements, etc. But Marxism indeed was received um, in Russia at the university level as an economic theory, as a theory about the development of capitalism which explains why not only the social democrats um, of, let's say, Western orientations or the Marxist social democrats, which later became the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, uh, but also many liberals were very fond of Marx because Marx, to them, showed the inevitability of a capitalist economy. Um, for the socialists, that w- this would be a transitory stage. So you, you first have capitalism and then you get a growing proletariat and um, a socialist revolution, etc. Um, but still, Marxists believed that history had to go through that stage. And that was something that the social democrats very much appreciated um, and made them basically support the um, the strategy of the Tsarist regime to develop capitalism in Russia. And it was also supported by the liberals because the liberals wanted this capitalist um, economy also because they believed that it would go along with um, uh, civic liberties like freedom of the press uh, freedom of religion etc which they favored very much uh, private property that sort of thing so there was a, a strange coalition or an unexpected coalition if you like of socialists and liberals um, supporting Marxism and, and promoting Marxism as an economic theory rather than as a political ideology and it, this also is, is partly due to the fact that um, the first text by Marx translated into Russian, apart from the Communist Manifesto, which had a small circulation in Russia, limited to um, Marxist circles. Um, capital um, was widely read and widely distributed in, uh, in Russian. And uh, Russia was one of the first countries where it was translated. And it was received as an economic theory. So, be other than Marxism, you mentioned other kinds of
0: socialisms that were uh, stewing around that time. Uh, could you highlight the dichotomy economy between something like ag- agrarian socialism and Marxism, and uh, what were their conflicts with each other?
1: Yeah. Um, again, that that is, I think, a very that uh, personally, it's one of the topics that I like most in um, in the book. Um, this agrarian socialism was based on the idea um, shared also by many of the Slavophiles let's call them the left-wing Slavophiles that um, the traditional peasant community in Russia um, was already a kind of socialist society because there was no private property the land was the common property of the community Um, of course the community itself was the property of um, uh, a noble, a nobleman, uh, but the community itself functioned in a well in a in a, in a manner that some people said were, was very close to the idea of socialism, and the agrarian socialists were of the opinion that this could be the basis of a socialist society, um, which also meant, and this is where they differed from the Marxists which also meant that Russia did not have to go through this capitalist stage. You have to realize there that the 19th century, which is when these debates took place, was a period of class struggle and massive poverty um, in the industrial areas of Western Europe and also the United States. Right? Um, especially the second half of the 19th century was a period of, of well, the, the familiar topics, You know the very long working days, the poverty of the proletariat, Uh, miserable housing conditions, um, sickness among children, child labor, that sort of thing, which these agrarian socialists despised uh, as much as the Marxists did, but they thought that Russia could bypass that stage and could reach socialism, could realize a socialist society without having to grow, sorry, without having to go um, through this horrible period of, of capitalist development. The Marxists, by contrast, like the liberals, as I said just a second ago, the Marxists believe that this capitalist stage and bourgeois society and things like that was a necessary stage in the historical development of any society, including um, including Russia. Um, and this has been a controversy also um, among people of Marxist leanings and sometimes people who would hesitate between the two between the two options and there's a very interesting um, uh, letter exchange between karl marx and vjera zasulich who was one of the russian social democrats about precisely that question whether socialism was possible in russia without capitalism without having to go through bourgeois capitalism and um marx was really puzzled by this question and um, Marx, who knew Russian, he had learned Russian in order to read read, uh, Russian intellectual works. He was very much interested in Russia's uh, economic reality, socio-economic reality. Um, And he looked into this issue very seriously and ultimately came to the conclusion that it could have been possible to bypass capitalism, but only if Capitalism did not destroy the agrarian community, the agrarian economy of Russia. And according to him, that had already happening or uh, had already happened or was happening at the time of uh, of this debate. So in the 80, uh, 1880s. Um, and then Marx ultimately came to the conclusion that unfortunately, Russia was already not in a position to bypass capitalism and had to go through it. From that point onward, um, the the split between the agrarian socialists, so-called Narodniki, um, and the the Marxist socialists was complete, because they really opted for different versions, including the idea among Marxists that, yes, capitalism is a very um, unpleasant and and horrible um, historical period. But we have to go through it. So we have to accept this misery and we have to accept poverty, etc., in order to come out better at the other end, which is something that the agrarian socialists and later the so-called social revolutionaries who continued that agenda, uh, they didn't agree with. They still felt that it would be possible to find another, another solution and another road to socialism.
0: So I guess going back more on the side of uh, religion, you uh, enumerate four Christian political philosophers. uh, These are Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Slovanov, and Fedorov. Uh, We usually don't think of, well, I don't think of these as political philosophers. I guess uh, what political philosophy can you extract from these four figures?
1: Um. this chapter, the chapter on these four Christian, as I labeled them, four Christian political philosophers, is, I think, one of the, maybe one of the best chapters in the book. At least I know quite a few people who really enjoyed it. Um, I'm not claiming that they are political philosophers in the professional sense of the, of the word, the sense in which I am, for example, a political philosopher, right? Trained as such and teaching at the university. The only person who comes close to that is Solovyov, Vladimir Solovyov, um, who did write a number of things that can be considered political philosophy. He also did lots of other things, but he does have titles that clearly can be understood as political philosophy. An explicit theory of the, th- of the state, an explicit theory of, of justice and things like that. A theory of the just war also. Um, Well, I think that what makes them political philosophers, these four Christian thinkers, including well-known figures like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who are mostly known as writers, of course, and a much lesser known figure like Fyodorov, um, who is, by the way, very, very interesting as a founder of so-called cosmism, which was an important uh, current in the 20th century among Russian thinkers, but also among artists. but what, make, what what brings them together is that all of them, all four of them, try to find some kind of synthesis, including a political synthesis or a political system, um, on the basis of two things. One is the Christian tradition, as they understand it, which they understand, they understand it differently, um, on the one hand, and inevitable modernization of society on the other so they are people who are um, struggling to develop a kind of christianity that fits this modernizing 19th century modernization that also took place in russia and very rapidly russia was late with modernization but it went very quickly and they were witnessing this so they were, were witnessing the rise of modern technology and modern science and things like that in Russia and the impact it had on um, society. And what makes their thought political is, first of all, that they addressed the political consequences of this. So Dostoevsky, for example, would argue against um, electoral democracy because it is a way of dividing the people whereas the people should be united. Um, So the, the very idea of political parties um was was something that none of them wanted to uh, to accept um the, the word party already has the idea of partition in it right there it, uh, it, it stands for a part of society whereas what they wanted was a whole of society their approach was holistic if you like um under the under the banner of christianity of course but what they also do apart from developing a kind of vision of how a modern russia could be christian and should be christian according to them um, they also started to develop their own versions of christianity um, which is interesting and also politically sensitive uh, from the perspective of the of the christian tradition that was part of russian reality and was protected by the state so they became sort of heretic uh, thinkers from the perspective of the church. Um, and if you look closely at what they write to an extent with the exception of, uh, of Dostoevsky who really wanted to be a faithful Orthodox Christian, but in the three other cases you really find you see them diverge from official dogma and you see them struggling with that. And Tolstoy was excommunicated um, by the church. Fyodorov was facing excommunication, was ultimately not excommunicated, but um, didn't publish his, his works out of fear for excommunication. And Solovyov was fighting with the religious authorities for most of his career. And that also that's also a reason to, um, to call them um, political philosophers because they manifest themselves as independent and as autonomous. Um, thinking individuals within the Christian tradition, but defining Christianity as they see fit. In that sense, you can compare them with many of the free thinking Christians in uh, Western Europe and also in the United States at the time, um, who would develop their own version of Christianity. And in a society like the um, American society or most West European societies, that's not much of a problem because the church does not have the power to really control what's going on in, uh, in the intellectual world. But in the case of Russia, the church did have that control through the state. So they would closely watch what what was going on there and sometimes also interfere in those debates. And that is also why I would call them uh, political philosophers. So moving into the 20th century, um, we usually
0: hear of the 1917 revolution, the revolution that, that sort of sparked... Uh, the founding of the Soviet system, but uh, there was a revolution before that—the the 1905 revolution. Could you highlight the differences between the 1905 and the 1917 revolution? Was the 19 was the 1917 revolution just a continuation, or was there something different in character between those two?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the complete answer is both of them. Um, it is a continuation in the sense that the 1905 revolution was really a liberal revolution. So it was it was about um, making the monarchy um, a constitutional monarchy instead of an absolutist one. It was about um, establishing parliament, um, the Duma. Um, the, the parliament in Russia is still called Duma today, or again called Duma, I should perhaps say. Um, but it failed. So the 1905 revolution uh, failed to achieve its its aims. Um, and there was a parliament, there was a very limited kind of constitution. But after 1905, um, this, this progress was reverted. So if you look at the subsequent Duma elections, every new election was less democratic than the previous one. So the suffrage was limited, for example, from uh, election to election, um, which is part of the explanation why many people in Russia felt that a second revolution was necessary to complete this process of liberalization and, uh, and the, and the constitutional uh, process, which was the 1917 revolution, but not the October revolution, but the February revolution. But the February revolution is really the completion of the 1905 uh, revolution. It realized the Republic. It led to the abolition of uh, the tsarist regime. Um, it established uh, a parliamentary system. Um, many different political parties came uh, came on the, on the scene. Um, it led to the liberation, liberalisation of uh, the liberal, liberalisation, li- sorry, liberation of uh, of society, but also of the church, which was um, again uh, could again elect elect a patriarch. Once the Tsarist regime had gone, um, it led to equal rights for men and women, voting rights for women after February 1917, etc. Um, so you can fairly say, I think, that the 1917 revolution in February, who actually which actually took place on the 8th of March, so International Women's Day, um, according to our calendar, it was the 8th of March. And this people in Russia were very much aware of this, and women played a big role in this February Revolution. That is the real continuation of the 1905 revolution, but it took place under conditions of World War I. Russia was at war. Uh, it was losing this war, and rather dramatically losing it. And society remained divided over many issues, including the war but also including social justice. Um, the Social Democrats were a large political force. There was a provisional government which was mostly liberal and Social Democrat, but let's say moderately Social Democrat. And there was the much more radical Petrograd um, Soviet of uh, workers and, uh, and soldiers. And so this whole 1917 year, until the October Revolution, which according to our calendar took place in November, um, until then, there was a very undecided situation with a dual government, there was no unitary state, uh, Russia kept losing this war, um, and there was poverty and there was hunger, etc. And nineteen seventeen, what we usually call the nineteen seventeen revolution, the October Revolution, was in my analysis at least, people disagree a bit about that. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate among, among scholars here, but I think that it was primarily um, a coup d'etat by the Bolsheviks who took over um, who organized general elections shortly after their victory um, but didn't accept the results and other parties were uh, prohibited were banned um, freedom of the press was restricted etc and that is the start of the, of the Soviet regime we shouldn't forget I think that the Soviet regime was bathing in blood from the very start the terror started almost immediately after the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. They started killing uh, their political enemies, and uh, already in nineteen seventeen, and then certainly in nineteen eighteen, it was in basically it was a big massacre, and um, Lenin has a, a big share of the responsibility there. Um, some people say that things went wrong when Stalin came to power, but. Uh, Lenin personally signed many of the, um, the, the, the death um, condemnation, the condemnations of uh, people, the executions, etc. And it was very much in favor of what was called red terror. Um, so with the 1917, the second revolution, so the October Revolution, a different element comes into place, the Bolshevik um, vision of, of politics, When Lenin returned to Russia in April 1917, he was almost the only person among the Bolsheviks who wanted to continue with a socialist revolution. All the others were thinking, well, let's join this um, new republic and be an opposition within within the republic, the bourgeois, if you like, republic that was founded um, after February 1917. Lenin was almost alone and he managed to seize power within the Bolshevik party um, and then in uh, in Russia as a whole and well that was the starting point of, uh, of the Soviet Union after a very bloody uh, civil war by the way it was until 1920 1921 um, before the Bolsheviks really had gained the upper hand and could establish their regime across across Russia
0: so I guess my next question is uh, other political tendencies, what happened to them? Uh, in in particular, the what you highlight is the Russian religious philosophers, people like Shestov, Shept, and Losev?
1: Yeah. Um, I think you when when you look at that period, so basically we're talking about the first couple of decades. Um after the establishment of the Soviet Union um, I think a broad distinction can be made between let's call them alternative um, positions within the socialist camp so that applies to Trotsky for example but it also applies to Bogdanov and to Bukharin, people who were gradually sidelined by Stalin and his allies um, by the 1930s Almost all of the initial Bolsheviks, um, uh, with uh, the exceptions of Stalin himself and Alexandra Kolontai and one other figure, all the others had died and most of them not of natural causes. They had been killed by the Soviet regime. All the initial Bolsheviks, the so-called old Bolsheviks, had been uh, annihilated. Um, So there was a struggle in the leftist camp, if you want, where Stalin came out victorious in the end around 1930. Um, and there were the many, um, the many subcurrents um, in Soviet society at the time, and religious philosophy is one of them. Um, partly, it existed in exile, especially in Prague and later in Paris and Berlin. Also, part of it emigrated to uh, the United States afterward, where a theological academy was founded in the city of New York. Um, but part of it survived. With great difficulties in the early Soviet Union, and somebody like Losiev even survived the Soviet regime, um, while well, he died while the Soviet regime was still in place. But he was not um, he was not killed by it. But some some of the others, like Spet, for example, was and Flajenski, who stayed in the Soviet Union, so they were really looked upon um, with great suspicion by the Soviet regime, um, because there still was in in the cultural field and also among intellectuals and among philosophers, there was a strong sympathy for um, the the combination, the connection between philosophy and religion, and then with political implications, um, which is something that the Soviet regime, the young Soviet regime really wanted to get rid of and um, did get rid of with the harshest possible means. And then it only survived in a few niches um, in the academic world, Losev is the most famous example there of somebody who managed to continue um, this this tradition of Russian religious philosophy into into the 1980s, um, and did have a following. So he would teach seminars in his private apartment in the, in the center of Moscow. Today, it's a museum, the Dom Loseva, the Losev House. It's a library and a museum and a conference center and things like that. But that is where he privately continued this tradition um, and was quite influential among uh, Russian intellectuals. But well, within within small circles, so to speak.
0: So fast, forward in, fast forwarding to the uh, later part of the 20th century, could you please highlight uh, the Petroishka reform? Uh, initiated by Brezhnev and then Gorbachev, and what were they trying
1: to accomplish? Um, Yeah, well, Perestroika was really the invention of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, who was part of a generation of Soviet um, civil servants, if you want, party members, of course, also, but people who were managing parts of society and of the economy. Um, And Gorbachev was deeply convinced of the possibility to um, reform the Soviet system, make it more efficient, make it more uh, open, make it more just, if you want. Um, And he also was convinced that if they didn't do that and if they didn't hurry doing it, reforming the Soviet system, um, it would collapse and it would mean the end of the system, and it would mean the end of the uh, communist party, which is what actually happened. So in that sense, the perestroika project of Gorbachev uh, failed. Uh, perestroika means rebuilding or reconstruction, and it was clearly his agenda to reconstruct socialism in order to make it um, survive and to continue socialism as a viable alternative to other Social economic systems, such as uh, the capitalist system of Western Europe and and the Americas and other parts of the world. Um, It failed, but it did have great, it did have strong effects because it liberated the intellectual landscape, it liberated academia. The The 1990s, in particular, are a period in which many of the positions and currents that had been. Um, marginal and suppressed and um, uh, hardly visible during the Soviet period, uh, popped up and became part of a much more lively and, and varied intellectual landscape, which to an extent continues until the present day. But currently, of course, the regime in Russia has become more oppressive than it was in the 1990s. And it has become increasingly oppressive in the 21st century. Um, So today, intellectuals are really, and philosophers in particular, are really in a difficult situation when they focus on their scholarly work, their academic work, so to speak. Uh, They still have a lot of freedom, um, but they are not supposed to try to turn that into um, political positions or to comment on current affairs or things like that. Their suppression is really uh, is really effective. Um, so Perestroika ultimately meant the end of the Soviet system, and this was not Gorbachev's idea. Um, Gorbachev was inspired by um, the so-called Prague Spring of 1968, the idea of socialism with a human face that came to power in uh, Czechoslovakia at the time under Alexander Dubcek, and um, so Gorbachev was part of a generation that took part of their inspiration from there. He, also, he knew people from Czechoslovakia. Uh, he had friends there. Um, and, and he was deeply convinced of the, what at the time was called stagnation of the Soviet system, uh, Zastoy in Russian. Uh, and the, the guy to blame for that was mostly uh, Leonid Brezhnev, uh, so one of Gorbachev's predecessors.
0: So I guess going from the late 90s into the 2000s uh what was the perception of I guess the early Putin go from from Yeltsin to Putin was it was it seen as a a, a big difference or was it just a continuation of the same system and what was the uh, what, what was the evolution of Putin's thought through through the early
1: 2000s up till now mm mm-hmm. Mhm yeah Um, that's a good question and of course there's no easy answer to this question also because i think this is something that historians will work on for a long time um but uh, okay i'm i'm not a historian i'm a political philosopher the way i see it the putin regime is largely a continuation of the yeltsin regime um putin was in fact appointed by yeltsin as his successor and um the, the the price he had to pay to pay for the I mean Putin was not a very visible figure until 2000. He was seen as a rather mediocre person um, an official of course somebody with influence but not as one of the pretenders um, for the next presidency. so in that sense he was a bit of a surprise to most people, uh, including most Russians who didn't who barely knew him um, and the deal was that um, Yeltsin and his family um, would be left free in their um, economic, in the economic sense. So Yeltsin has been amassing lots of uh, money, and also his family. The, the group around Yeltsin was called the family, uh, which, not accidentally, rings um, bells that we usually connect with the mafia in Italy or elsewhere in the world so this family idea you know and and the corruption that goes along with it economic benefits etc and this Yeltsin family was allowed to keep all that um, uh, into the 21st century um, under under Putin that was part of the deal so in that sense it's a complete continuation also the so-called oligarchs um, rose to power in the 1990s economic power but also political influence And they also wanted this continuity and they wanted to see their interests um, protected. Once in power, I think that Putin in the beginning has really been betting on a good relationship with uh, the Western Hemisphere, with NATO. Um, He had no illusions about Russia becoming part of the West, something that Gorbachev had been dreaming of. Gorbachev was speaking about the common European home, and there has even been some talk about uh, right. Russia joining the European Union, which I think is an absurd idea, but which was appealing to many people. Putin has no has has never had any illusions there, I think, and what has been driving him is the idea of Russia's significance, Russia's greatness, Russia's importance in the world. The great trauma for Putin was precisely the the breakdown of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union falling apart. At the time, he was in Germany, and it came as a complete surprise to Putin. And for him, he has been describing it as the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. In the view of most people, that may be an exaggeration if you compare it with the Holocaust, for example. Um, But it certainly is how Putin sees it, and has been seeing it from the beginning. And We should note in that respect that Putin grew up in the later Soviet Union. So he was born, if I'm not mistaken, in 1952. So he grew up in the post Stalin era, a period of relative stability, a period of economic growth, a period of uh, increasing international prestige of the Soviet Union, which had won uh, World War II. of course, had liberated large parts of Europe had put most of Eastern and parts of Central Europe under its influence, had a big impact in the East, in, in uh, Vietnam, in uh, in Korea, and China also for a while, um, and was successful in, in things, in fields like science and technology, you know, putting the first human person into space, Yuri Gagarin. And people like Putin were proud of those things. They were not fans per se of socialism or of uh, the road towards a communist future they were very much about order stability prosperity and international significance and recognition of Russia and I think that is is something which continues um, in the way Putin is looking at the world until the present day and from that perspective from Putin's perspective there is no difference between the Soviet Union and the Tsarist regime that preceded it. For somebody like Putin, that is a continuity. That is a continuity of a great Russia that includes not only ethnic Russians but also a number of other nations that has this kind of large uh, empire-like structure and that plays an important role as a power, maybe not a superpower anymore, but certainly as a regional power in the world a country, a power uh, that others uh, have to take into into account. Um, and part of the explanation of what is going on now is the widespread sense of humiliation on the Russian part. People in a country like the Netherlands and I guess also the United States of America have a very hard time understanding why Russia should feel so humiliated or why so many Russians should feel, um, humiliated and, and not respected and things like that, but that sense that sentiment is very widespread in, uh, in Russia today and to a large extent explains the support um, of, the, of parts of the Russian population of the current war in, in Ukraine um, even if they don't like Putin and if they don't like Putin's uh, domestic policies which for many Russians is the case not, in that sense his popularity uh, rates have gone down and dramatically over the last couple of years but they do share his um they do share this agenda of um putting russia back on the map um seeing russia not care about international legal order which is seen as simply another word for western domination and things like that um, and, and that really is explicable in terms of the feeling especially in the 1990s that um russia had been humiliated internationally if you look back at how boris yeltsin was treated by um in 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 the international arena you can understand how that worked Uh, russia had been reduced all these other republics had been cut off from russia russians also very often have the feeling that they were they were the losing part in this falling apart of the soviet union all the other republics were celebrating their liberation, their independence, etc. Ukraine, among among uh, among others, but also the Baltic republics, for example, Central Asian republics, they were all celebrating their independence. But Russia had no independence to celebrate. Russia had to celebrate being dismembered, um, and so there's a very strong sense of tragedy and and uh, and humiliation there.
0: So going. Uh, I guess keeping with into the twenty first century, another figure we always hear looming in the background is someone like Alexander Dugin. Uh I guess could you highlight, does Dugin have any influence on I guess the Putin regime and uh where does he
1: stand in Russian political thought? Yeah. Um well Dugin, I've been recently since I wrote since I wrote this book, um, I have been working a lot on uh on Dugin. I've been focusing on him almost exclusively for two months, reading his works, but also a lot of works around him or, and about him. Um, and I have to say that I do discuss Dugin in the book um, as one of the people who introduced Heidegger into Russian thought and developed a political philosophy on that basis, on the basis of a particular reading of Heidegger. I think a very problematic reading of Heidegger um generally i think what dugan is doing is can hardly be uh can hardly be qualified as philosophy because it is very uncritical it is a form of gnosticism so he has discovered a truth and everything he reads is put into the framework of that truth it is a way of thinking in which there are no questions there are only answers to any uh to any question so it's a very I would say a very unsympathetic type of thinking. It's also part of what today we, we know as um, uh, conspiracy thinking. Uh, he even has a book about that, which is con- called Conspiralogia, conspiracy thought or conspiracy theory. Um, and the idea of that is not to analyze what conspiracies are, which, if you look closely, and as I said, I have been looking closely, and I'm not the only one, um, which is mostly resembling fascism. That is where it comes closest. So it, it focuses on a strong state, a state that not only can but must be oppressive, suppress opposition, etc. Um, the main difference, perhaps, to say something positive if you want, um, The main difference with fascism is that it is not ethnically ethnically nationalistic. So there is no theory about race or something like that. On the contrary, um, Dugin is opting for what he calls Eurasian civilization, which is partly Slavonic and Russian, of course, and Christian, but also partly Asian and um, Islamic. So in his narrative, uh, Central Asia, and even places like Mongolia are part of the Eurasian project that should formulate uh, and articulate uh, an alternative to Western, um, Western hegemony. You asked about Dugin's influence. I think in intellectual circles, his influence is very limited. So I don't know any philosopher who takes him seriously, to put it bluntly um at the same time his books are widely read so he is quite well known and popular um the same applies to his daughter who was killed in uh, the summer in um um, an assault that has not been clarified yet it's not clear whether it was aiming at her or at him or at both of them because she also really is uh, or was um, a well-known figure and kind of spokesperson for his sort of uh, theory when it comes to the influence on um, the regime, I think that the current regime in uh, in the Kremlin is essentially instrumentalizing people like Dugin, because they have much more radical um, opinions. Um, Dugin, for example, is, is much more militant and much more aggressive in his rhetoric than uh, the Kremlin or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the and the, the people who speak on behalf of of the kremlin for example um, many people in the world are worried by this idea that russia might at some point use nuclear weapons tactical nuclear weapons um, which is discussed in government circles in russia as um well you know we should keep this option open um, the russian military doctrine does keep this option open. Um, so there is speculation about whether this should be, perhaps, um, used or not. But it is seen as a necessary evil. It is seen as something that is not positively wanted. And that would mean an escalation of, uh, of the conflict. Whereas somebody like Dugin is actively advocating um, um, that Russia should start a nuclear war, a large-scale nuclear war, in order to bring the apocalypse closer um, so the end of the world which will mean the the, the return of um, of the messiahs and which will mean the liberation of all of mankind etc and which will of course <laughs> um, as part of that process will end any kind of hegemony be it American or uh, or Russian or other so he is really very aggressive in uh, the way in which he speaks and has become Increasingly aggressive, he has been criticizing uh, Putin um, from the right uh, from the very beginning. There's a book by him called "Putin Versus Putin," in which he gives a right-wing critique of Putin. Putin being not radical enough, Putin, Putin lacking a kind of mission there where Russia should uh, end Western domination, actively end Western domination, not only, not only domination over Russia. But domination over the world, um, and I think that for from the perspective of the Kremlin, Dugin is one of those figures that are useful in the sense that they can always say, "Look, there are more radical voices than our voice." Uh, and this may not have an in, a big impact internationally, but it certainly has an impact domestically. It certainly this this may sound crazy to to anybody listening to the to this podcast but we shouldn't forget that inside Russia and inside the government the in, inside the political elite and the intellectual elite Putin is rather a moderate figure um, that may sound completely crazy but if you look at the possible alternatives it is uh, unfortunately it is it is quite true there are other forces and other voices and they are more offensive and more aggressive uh, and more anti-Western than uh, Putin, who, by the end of the day, I think will still be ready to strike some kind of compromise.
0: Are there any alternatives uh, to the left of Putin that hasn't been expunged from the from the government?
1: Yeah. Well, there still is some people. Some people st- say that there still is a kind of. Um, liberal current um, in the period, in the 21st century, um, so during the presidency of of, of Putin and then also for a while uh, Dmitry Medvedev um, there has been struggle going on between um, the so-called Siloviki, the people of the powers, so that's the army and the secret service um, on the one hand and the people in the ministry of economy finances etc um, who are of a more liberal orientation liberal not necessarily in the political sense but in the economic sense so less in, uh, less um, state influence and things like that liberation of the market um, and to an extent also liberation of the of the public sphere so they will they will tend to be in favor of things like the freedom of the press political pluralism and things like that. Liberalism in that sense, so a rather conservative, if you want, a relatively right-wing type of liberalism, um, but still not the author- authoritarianism of the people around Putin. And Putin himself, he has a background in the Secret Service in the KGB. And later, his connections are with the FSB. Uh, so he's one he, he's one of those people who are called Silovic. Uh, <laughs> persons of power, persons of the armed um, branches of government. Um, since the beginning of the war in uh, in Ukraine, since the invasion or effectively already before that, it's clear that those people from the military and from the secret services have gained the upper, upper hand. Um, but that doesn't mean that the others have disappeared. I think they're still working in the ministries. There have been moments in the recent... Uh, past. So in the last year, during the last year, where um, the director of the Central Bank of Russia would protest. She has even tried to resign, but Putin has refused to accept that resignation. Um, that's quite a thing if the, if, the, if the president of the National Bank wants to resign because she doesn't agree with the monetary policies or the policies of the Kremlin. Um, so I think there is a lot of, there are a lot of people not inside the inner circle of uh, the regime at this point, but around it in the ministries. Um, another example is the mayor of Moscow um, and, and quite a few other people who, who now keep quiet, um, but who might pop up at some point when this war is really becoming problematic for the regime. and. It's impossible, of course, to predict the near future, but we do see cracks, right? We do see the opposition of the Wagner group, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin against the Ministry of Defense, etc. A type of critique, I think, that um, a regime at war cannot really afford itself, um, and which is a sign of division in the higher ranks of the military and of the political elite. So it's difficult to predict anything there. But I do think there is a liberal current, which is, as it were, waiting for better times. There's also um, a bunch of more leftist positions, partly Marxist or post-Marxist, post-structuralist. That's a plethora of uh, positions. And in the book, I mentioned a couple of them. Uh, but there are many more. And I think that, from a philosophical point of view or from an intellectual point of view, those are the more interesting things. That's I think it is a hundred times more interesting than somebody like Dugin. Um, but again, under the current conditions, people are not really speak, are not really uh, free to speak, um, so they keep silent and they. Some of them have left Russia, others have stayed in Russia, and they wait for better times, better opportunities.
0: So I think that's all the time we have for today, but we, we usually like to end our interview by asking our guests if they have any future projects.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, as I said, I'm, I'm currently working on, uh, on Dugin. I still have to finalize the things that I wrote um, about him. Um, apart from that, I am working on a topic that I had to leave out largely uh, when writing the book, which is one of those religious thinkers of the 20th century, uh, Maria Skaptsova So right now I'm I'm writing about her, it's a fascinating figure who moved from a very leftist leftist position to a kind of, well, some would call it Christian socialism, all others would call it social Christianity, um, which she developed in um, in in uh, emigration in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and um, that's one of the people that I'm working on, but that's sort of an individual project of mine. Um, Other than that, I'm part of a project which is investigating the Paris Commune and its legacy, its political legacy. And in that framework, I'm looking at the Russian thinkers who have been connected to the Paris Commune of 1871 and have been uh, writing about it, so that's... Uh, two familiar names perhaps to some listeners um, that's um, Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin the great anarchist and also Pyotr Krapotkin, one of the other anarchists and that is um, a person called Piotr Lavrov um, who was one of these uh, social revolutionaries or agrarian socialists if you want, so more of the alternative sort of uh, socialism that was Uh, vibrant in uh, Russia in the second half of the 19th century. Very interesting figure who wrote a lot about the Paris Commune, who was um, uh, an acquaintance of Karl Marx and communicated with those people, with the Marxists, but who was not a Marxist himself. So that's a very interesting figure who has been relatively little studied. Um, And for me, that is part of a project if I want to put these things together Um, I'm working on a project, and not alone, there are other people in the world working on this, to have another look at those people who had been instrumentalized by the Soviet regime. So anything on the left in the 19th and early 20th century um, has been given a place in the official Soviet narrative. Um, and that has, in many cases, has distorted their positions. That narrative has been selective. It has been instrumentalizing. It has been um, manipulating uh, the legacy of, uh, of many people. And I think it's high time, and it now is possible, to, to retrieve sources there and to rewrite part of Russia's philosophical history. That would be my project for upcoming years.
0: Avr, thank you so much for the interview.